0: Amen. Thank you, Robin. Only you could pull this off. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Uh, Back in the days of the communist rule in East Germany, some of us have lived that history. The younger generation probably read about it in history book, but we lived it. During that Terrible years when the communists were in control of East Germany and capital East Berlin. The Ministry of Education in East Berlin, for eight consecutive times, have turned down, refused the application of Mr. Holmer's eight children from being enrolled into the university. The Ministry of Education at that time uh, usually did not give a reason as to why they refused an application or an applicant into the university, why they rejected that enrollment. But in Mr. Homer's case, the reason for rejection of his eight children, application into the university, was not hard, was not hard to know. Mr. Homer was the Lutheran pastor in Lobital, which is a suburb of East Berlin. For 26 years, the Ministry of Education in East Berlin, or in East Germany, was headed by no other than the wife of the premier, the communist premier of East Germany, Marga Honka. She was the not only the wife of the premier, but she was total dictatorship over education system. Now, fast forward to 89, 90, when the Berlin Wall fell. Again, some of us would remember those days. We saw with our own eyes, both on the east side and on the west side, trying to knock that wall down, and finally the wall collapsed. When that happened, uh, premier... Hanukkah and his wife were thrown out of office and were indicted uh, as criminals, Uh, but that's not all. They were actually got thrown out of their luxurious palace in which they live in ventilates. and they were homeless. They were on the streets. Premier Hanukkah and his wife found themselves not only homeless in the street and friendless, no one would want to be associated with them. None of their former communist comrades who prouded uh, themselves on comradeship, camaraderie, camaraderie, none of them would even take a look at him or his wife. No one would identify with them or allow them to come into their home when they became homeless from the power to the streets, with only one exception. One exception, Pastor Homer and his family of eight children, they were the ones, the very people that Mrs. Hanukkah deprived them of education because of their Christian faith. They are the only family of Pastor Homer's family to welcome the deposed dictator and come to live in their house with their family. Mr. Homer said, Reverend Homer said, for the sake of Jesus, I exercise grace to the very people who persecuted them, discriminated against them. Beloved friends, I don't need to tell you that grace is the opposite of justice. Justice gives the person their dues. Justice shows no favor and knows no mercy. Justice pays exact wages, but grace is unmerited favor by the recipient. Grace is undeserved favor by the recipient. Please listen to me very carefully. There is no such thing as deserved grace. If it is deserved, then it's not grace. C.S. Lewis walked into the faculty room, uh, the English professor's faculty room at Oxford University one day, and as he wandered in there, they found them debating among themselves and talking about which is, uh, uh, what sets Christianity apart? Why is Christianity so unique? And every one of them was giving an opinion because of Christ or because of this or because of the other thing. And when C.S. Lewis walked in, one of them said to him, he said, Clive, we are debating What sets the Christian faith apart? He said, that's very simple. One word, grace, grace, grace. Because my beloved friends, the Christian faith is the only faith that does not require the believer to do anything for his or her salvation. It's the only faith. The Christian faith is the only faith that reveals the love of God reaching down to humanity. Adherents of all the other religions are desperately trying to reach out to a God whom they know nothing about except just by name. In fact, that is why the Christian faith is the only true faith. All the other so-called religions are either cheap imitation at best or fraudulent at worst. In fact, you never hear me refer to Christianity as a religion. I know some people do, and that's fine, but I, I, I never refer it to it as a religion. Why? because by its very definition, religion is man's effort trying to reach to a God, (laughs) but Christ showed us that God is the one who came down from heaven to reach us. Uh, God reached down to us with undeserved, unmerited, unearned, and unwarranted benevolence and, and love and mercy and grace. I want you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to 2 Samuel, or as Jonathan and all my British friends say, 2 Samuel, chapter 9, because here you're going to find a picture of the grace of Jesus 1,000 years before He showed up on earth, a picture of Jesus a thousand years before he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. I can tell you, I think personally, this is the most fantastic chapter in that whole series of messages, and I've been having the joy of preaching through it for it is the gospel in a capsule. It is the gospel in a microcosm. It is the gospel foreshadowed. Now, for our visitors, we are racing toward the end of a series of messages, a wonderful series of messages, a heart after God, as we're seeing it in the life of David. Look with me at verse 9. Chapter 9. But I think he knew what I'm talking about. Chapter 9, verse 1. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul so, to whom I can show kindness or favor or grace for Jonathan's sake? Now, let me tell you something. I'm unashamedly, this verse is enough to turn me into a shouting Pentecostal. And I mean it. And I did when I was alone. And I don't mind even doing it public. For I know that my God asked about me one day, is there anyone undeserving that I can show favor and I can save for the sake of my son Jesus? Glory to God he found me. And he found you. I told a few friends some time ago that the times you're going to see me falling apart preaching. Two times. Two different things. When I preach on grace, and I'll let you guess the other one. Think with me. Think with me here. David suffered for 15 years under Saul, Mephibosheth's grandfather. David was persecuted and hunted down for 15 years by Saul. David was chased from mountain to mountain. He was chased from wilderness to wilderness. He was chased from town to town. David barely escaped the javelin and the spear of Saul. Saul. And yet, can you say yet? As soon as David becomes king, as soon as David emerges victorious by the power of God alone, as soon as David comes into the seat of power, he exercises grace. As I said in this chapter, it's a foreshadowing of God's grace, who came to earth searching for lost sinners like me. Just like God, who initiated His work of grace in an undeserved sinner's life, David initiates the act of grace to the family of his archenemy. Just like God reached out to undeserving Disobedience and rebellious people, David reaches to Mephibosheth, the grandson of his very, uh, the very man who hated David, who resented David. Now, beloved, please listen to me, listen to me. If you've never listened to me, I want you to listen to me now. God is forever initiating overtures of grace, He's forever initiating overtures of grace. He is uh, uh, initiating overtures of common grace to everyone. For the Bible said the sun will shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain comes for the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the common grace of God that is shown to everyone but also he's initiating, forever initiating, uh, uh, overtures of grace and kindness to individuals in order that they might turn to him and believe in him, surrender to him. God did this when he reached down in benevolent grace on a man who was living in the Ur of Chaldeans by the name of Abraham. God did this when he reached down to Jacob at Bethel. God did this when he reached down to Moses in the land of Midian. God did this when he sought Saul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus to persecute his people. God did this to you and you and you and you and you and and me. And no wonder Paul in Titus 3, 3 to 6 says, At one time... We too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured into our hearts generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen belongs here. And so David so David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Verse 3, they said to him, yes. There is still a son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, and he's crippled both feet. You notice the Bible repeated that more than once? It's very important. Don't miss it. He's crippled in both feet. Now, if you flip back to chapter 4, verse 4, you're going to find how he became crippled. He became crippled as a result of a fall. When his father and grandfather were killed in battle, out of a panic, his nurse, his nanny was taking the little boy Mephibosheth and was running out of fear, not knowing what's going to happen. And in her running, she dropped him. And in him being, when he fell, he broke both of his feet. Here in 2 Samuel 9, Mephibosheth is no longer a little boy. He's a grown man. He's a grown man now. Listen to me. What I want to do today is I want to contrast, I want to contrast Mephibosheth's condition to yours and mine before Christ came into our life. Are you ready? First of all, it's his name. His name, Mephibosheth. In Hebrew, that means a shameful thing. That's his name, a shameful thing thing. Beloved, listen to me. Our condition before Christ came into our lives was a shameful thing. We were born in sin. We were born with our backs to God. We were born with minds and hearts that at enmity with God. We were born with a darkened mind. We were born with a will that is opposed to the will of God. And if you don't trust me, Watch the first word a baby announces, and it's not mom or dad, it is no. That's the original sin. And all of the good works that we can do looks like a dirty rag in the sight of God. Without Christ, we were all shameful things. Without Christ, we were all Mephibosheth. The second thing I want to show you in this contrast is that Mephibosheth was on the run from David. Think about this. Think about this. Just like our culture and our media, our education are lying to our kids about God, somebody lied to Mephibosheth about David, did not tell him the truth about David, and therefore, Mephibosheth, erroneously, all these years, he thought that David wanted revenge, that David uh, was going to get him, that David is his enemy. And so, he and his nanny ran away, and they ran away to the land of Dubar. Listen to me. I have seen it with my own eyes. So much of our education system, I've been reading a lot about it of late, They lie in the education system, secular education system, the media, the Hollywood. They lie about who God is. If God exists at all, they say He is their enemy. If God exists at all, He's a cruel master. If God exists at all, uh, He is distant and cold. If God exists at all, they say He doesn't care about human suffering. If God exists at all, He is not to be trusted. And therefore, the best thing for them to do is to avoid God. That is the essence of what is happening in our secular world. This is a rampant thought. And that is why here in this place we are totally committed to clean that lie and tell our children, young and old, that God loves them, that God cares for every single detail of their life, that God has a plan for their life, and that God, all they need to do is turn to Him and experience that love, just like Mephibosheth did. My beloved friends, The third thing, the third contrast that you're going to notice here between Mephibosheth and us before Christ is that he was crippled in both feet. That portrays our spiritual condition before Christ. No, the Bible actually said that we were not just crippled, we were dead spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin. By nature, we were unable to run to God. By nature, none of us could walk in the path of righteousness because we're spiritually crippled. By nature, none of us were able to trod into the way that leads to life. We were spiritually dead and crippled. So when Jesus said, no one, he meant no one, no one means no one. No one means no one, whether it would be a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim, I don't care what religion there are or no religion at all, when he says no one, means no one comes to the Father but by me. Only Jesus can carry us across the chasm of sin. Only Jesus can lead us to the Father's forgiveness. Only Jesus can strengthen us by His grace. Only Jesus can save us from condemnation. But the fourth thing I want to show you, the fourth contrast here, is Mephibosheth became crippled as a result of a fall. As a result of a fall. (laughs) The nurse or the nanny dropped him when he was a little boy, and he became crippled. Became crippled in both legs. Now, beloved... (laughs) We, too, became sinners by birth and by practice as a result of Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were not created to sin, but became spiritually crippled when they fell into sin and disobedience to the living God. And the fifth thing I want to show you here, verse 4, Mephibosheth lived in Lodabar. Lodabar means no pasture, no hope, no life. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the word lo, L O, means no. So now you become experts in the Hebrew language. Lo, every time you see it, when the book of Hosea says, I'll call the child lo rahama, means no mercy. Rahama means, means mercy. Here it comes from the land of Lodabar, the land of no pasture. It was a barren land. A place of dissatisfaction. It was a place of emptiness. And so it was for us. And today, the very people who live without Christ, and until they come to Christ... They are like us once were before we came to Christ. They're all living in the land of Lodebar. They are spiritually living in Lodabar. They spiritually live a barren life. They are living a spiritually empty life. They, 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 they're seeking satisfaction where they cannot be found. They are seeking contentment where it cannot be found. This young man, Mephibosheth, had everything go against him. Oh, but for the grace of God. Oh, for the grace of God. He came from a family that rebelled against God's anointed. He could not walk because of a fall. Uh, He was dwelling in the land of no hope, of utter barrenness. And yet, the king himself. And yet, can you say yet? Come on, I want to hear it loud. The king himself was seeking him. The king himself was reaching out to him. The king wanted to shower him with blessing. He wanted to shower him with grace. No wonder the apostle Paul could say in Romans 3:24, being justified freely. How? Freely. freely by his grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The natural thing that Mephibosheth had expected from King David was judgment. The natural thing that he was expecting was revenge. The natural thing is a death sentence. But instead, look at verse 6. Instead, that's the first contrast between the Lord and David. He called him by name. Say that with me. He. Calls in my name. Say it again. Calls in my name. Have you ever heard God call you by name? I have. And you can too if you listen. If you take time to listen, you'll hear God calling you by name. You're not just a face in the crowd to him. He knows you by name. And the times I audibly heard the Lord speak my name are the times when I least deserve it. In John chapter 10, verse 3, The Lord Jesus said, the good shepherd, he's referring to himself, of course, the good shepherd, he knows his sheep by name. Did you get that? Please say amen. 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 He calls you by name. At the burning bush, he called Moses by name. When he was walking down in Jericho Street, he looked up at the sycamore tree And he called Zacchaeus by name. At the empty tomb, Jesus calls Mary by name. On the road to Damascus, the Lord called, he called Saul of Tarsus by name. Beloved, he calls you by name. Just listen long enough, you'll hear it. You'll hear it. Let me ask you this. Do you know that your name is being mentioned in high places? Do you know that? Your name is mentioned in far higher places than anything in this earth or this world. Your name is known in the courts of heaven. Did you know that your name is spoken of by the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father by name? And so God, David called Mephibosheth by name. The second contrast between David and our Lord is in verse 7. He said to him, Fear not. Fear not. Do you know this is the very first thing that the Lord says to us when we come to Him in repentance and faith? The first thing He says to us, and He calls you by name and says, Fear not. John, fear not. Bob, fear not. Michael, fear not. Fear not, Jane. Don't fear not. Sue, fear not. That's the first thing he says to us. Fear not. Please don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is really important. It's very, very important because you notice there is no rebuke. There is no condemnation. There is no chiding. There is no anger uh, regarding the past. There is no reproach because of what the family did or did not do. No, he said to him what? He said to him what? My beloved, that's the first thing our precious Heavenly Father says to us, fear not when you come to Him, surrendering to Him, repenting of your sin, believing that He is Lord, that Jesus is Lord, that He rose from the dead. The first thing He says to you is what? What? Fear not Satan. Why? Because he has no authority over you. Fear not sin. Why? Because sin has no dominion over a child of God. Fear not the consequences of sin. Why? Because they are covered and they're washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Fear not hell. Why? Because you have been rescued from the horrors of hell. Amen. Amen. Not only did David call Mephibosheth by name, not only did David say to Mephibosheth, fear not. The third thing, verse 7, David said to him, I will restore to you all the land that belongs to your grandfather's soul. Beloved, I'm getting ready to shout because I know what I'm going to (laughs) say. You might not know what I'm going to say, but I think some of you do. (laughs) I'm getting ready to shout. (laughs) This grace without bounds, this grace is without borders, this grace is without category, this grace is without bargaining, this grace is without conditions, this grace is without stipulations. David did not say, well, Mephibosheth, if you behave and you take care of yourself, if you do this and you do the other thing and and, and do your chores, and I might restore to you the land of your forefathers. No, that would not be grace, would it? That would not be grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is everything for nothing. David showed grace to this young man, Mephibosheth, for the sake of Jonathan. And beloved God, show you and you and you and you and you and and me grace because of Jesus. Can you say amen? The fourth thing, yeah, give God praise. I don't care. Clap for me. Clap for God. Yeah, give him praise. The fourth thing that you notice here, verse 8, David's grace overwhelmed dear old Mephibosheth. I mean, he just overwhelms him. Let me tell you something. I'm going to be... Listen, I know if you get offended, please don't. I don't mean for you to be offended, but I'm telling you this. From my heart and from the Word of God, if the grace of God does not overwhelm you, something wrong with your salvation. <laughs> Listen to what Mephibosheth said. <laughs> what is your servant? You should take notice of it. this. Is like, I'm like a dead dog to you. Mephibosheth probably was thinking at the time, probably was saying to himself, again, I'm saying this not in the word of God, I'm just I always making a distinction. What a waste of time. All these years I spent running away from the king. What a waste of time. All these years I spent fearing the king, this wonderful, gracious king. What a waste of all these years I spent rejecting this wonderful king. I had the joy and the privilege of leading some men to Christ later in life. As a matter of fact, so many of them have gone to glory already. But I remember the common thing that I would hear from them afterward. Why did I have to wait All these years to come to Christ? Why did I waste all these years without Christ? Why did I run away from such a loving God, merciful God, forgiving God? Why did I not trust Him sooner? Why did I run away for so long? It's almost too good to be true. One person said that to me. Even though I came to the Lord relatively earlier in my life, I still, to this day, regret. Not that I live in regret, but regret the times I run away from God. But I thank God, as I said to all these people, and I tell you, and I tell myself all the time, God's timing is perfect. Can you say that with me? God's timing is perfect. Just trust His sovereign will. I don't know about you. The grace of God to me humbles me beyond measure. Put me to my face, on my face, before God. God. That grace leads me to quick repentance the moment I sin. This grace overwhelms me into unconditional obedience to the Lord. Far from this modern idea that some young pastors are preaching, that grace means that you sin to your heart's content and grace will cover it. No, beloved, that's a sin of presumption. That's not the grace of God. That's license that they're granting themselves. The true grace of God humbles us in obedience, surrender, not of only the things we have or who we are, everything. And here we are. I want you to hear me right. Young people, please listen. I know everybody today talks about self-worth, 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 And I want to tell you, the only self-worth that is worth having, it is that God, the God of the universe, knows you by name. That God, the God of the universe, loves you dearly. That the God of the universe has a plan for your life. That the God of the universe has uh, named you, In his will to be an inheritor of his eternal life, that the God of the universe has given you the greatest inheritance that anyone can even imagine. That's the self worth I need. That's all the self worth that I need. We need to teach that to our children. Sorry, I'm not sick. I don't have a cold. It's just when I cry, my nose runs. I'm sorry. (laughs) And how can you be not overwhelmed? By the grace of Jesus. How? David did not only call Mephibosheth by name, David did not only tell Mephibosheth, Fear not. David did not only restore to him the inheritance of his forefathers. David did not only overwhelm Mephibosheth with grace, but fifthly, David invited Mephibosheth to eat at his table. What a contrast. What a contrast. He's going from the land of Lodabar, (laughs) the land of barrenness, to the king's table. Did you get that? Did you get that? Did you really get it? (laughs) Well, listen to me. From depravity to abundance, that is the grace of God. This is how God saves He saves from the guttermost to the uttermost, from the depth of depravity to the height of purity. He saves from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. He saves from the prison to the palace. He saves from slavery to sonship. He saves from being lost to being the center of his attention. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Mephebosheth was not going to eat at the servant's table. That would have been wonderful. That would be great. No, no, no sorry. No, 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 not the servant's table. Uh, He's not even going to eat at the kid's table. (laughs) You know what I mean? When the family get together, you put a kid's table. And I know when kids get to teenage years, I don't want to sit in the kid's table. He's not going to sit at the kid's table. He's not going to eat as an alien or a guest but as a member of the family. He was not going to eat as a stranger, but just as equal to his sons. He was not going to eat some of his meals at the king's table Other meals in the kitchen with the servants. No, 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 no. (laughs) And that's precisely what John said in 1 John 3, 1. How great is the Father. How great is the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of who? Beloved, please listen carefully. I'm getting close to the end. Through Jesus, we have received far, 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 far more than was lost in Adam in the garden. Because sitting at the king's table for a crippled man, Mephibosheth, legs, are hidden from view under the table. The one who was named a shameful thing is now honored. The shameful become honorable. The crippling of sin is hidden completely from God's view for God's eternally covers it all up by the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus covers all of our crippling sin. So much so that when the Father looks at you, when he looks at you, he sees the wounds of Jesus. He sees the blood of Jesus. I don't know about you. I'm getting ready to stand and shout. I really am. Would you stand just do that? Where are the musicians? Where are the musicians? Come on, guys. Help us shout this, evening, this morning, okay? Lord, praise you, God. We are overwhelmed beyond measure, but I pray, Lord Jesus, don't allow this to be just an emotional overwhelming, but practical overwhelming by dedicating every ounce of who we are and what we have and what we do for you and for your glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts to the Lord's table.